I pick all these songs I love and I sing them like a wild man, and then I'm, I'm about exhausted when I get ready to uh, get ready to, to preach or teach or whatever you call what I do. Uh, your Bible's open to First uh, Corinthians chapter, First Corinthians chapter six. First uh, Corinthians chapter six, and and uh, for the next hour and a half, I just. <laughs> I just want to share with you a little bit out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. God's good, isn't He? Um, Jonathan Edwards uh, made, uh, if you ever do any, do any reading on Jonathan Edwards, uh, Jonathan Edwards <clears throat> um, made a bunch of resolutions, uh, I mean hundreds of them, uh, resolved like personal, these personal statements of dedication, resolved to... And one of the ones I remember the most is, and this is a paraphrase, but resolve to live like this was the last day on earth. Treat every day like it was the last day we would live on earth. Now, and really the Bible kind of tells us that's how we should live. But the, the reason we live that way is not because we're going to die, but because we live because we expect who to come back? Jesus. We expect Jesus to come back. And uh, if you read the book of Acts, I, I'm convinced, if you read, uh, by the way, I said 1 Corinthians 6, didn't I say that? Okay, I was right, I'm not so right, but, but anyway, uh, the, they believe that, and you can read the first several chapters of the book of Acts, and I believe that's one reason why they were so committed, was because they really believed Christ was coming in their lifetime, and as a, my theology says that Correct theology would say every generation has, should believe that, that Christ could come in their lifetime. And God wants it that way. And we use this word imminent. This, the imminence of Christ's return motivates us to be ready. And John mentions it in, in 1 John. You know, we live, we're ready so when He appears we won't be embarrassed at His coming. You know, we won't be living a way that's embarrassing to him and, and to us as well when he when he returns the little title and I when I give my sermon uh, my secretary Julie always wants me to give a title to my message and I haven't done that in years but I've had to do it for the past six months because it if I chase a rabbit you'll know it because I'm I'm off point right because in the bulletin it has where I'm supposed to be headed. So I think in the bulletin it says, uh, where do you stand? Something like that, right? That's, we're going we're gonna to find that in 1 Corinthians 6. Give, give me just a second. Let me recover. <laughs> Diane hates it when I leave the music, but I love it. Because I love to, not that I can sing well, but I love some of the great hymns. And I, if you're ever at the office and I don't know you're here, You'll, I'm usually in there yodeling to myself something. Um, I'm 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I am going to pick up at verse 1, and you'll see the context when we get there about taking a stand. You know, where do you, where do you stand? I was reading about, uh, I think about how we're satisfied, how, how easily satisfied we are with trinkets and useless, passing, 
stuff. You know, we, uh, I know our kids, it used to be, I would say this was a popular word. I don't know whether this is a popular word among teenagers or kids anymore. We used to say, oh, that's cool. Remember? Cool. I even, before I got saved, uh, that was the kind of cigarette we would smoke. The cools. Remember those? You bunch of pagans? Remember that? And then the other ones that tasted like cools were Salem's. Y'all remember that? Salem's? Man, they'd bite your throat. Boy, they were strong. Man, it was terrible. I don't know if they rolled to, to, a tobacco, I mean, a rabbit tobacco or what, but that was nasty stuff. Anyway, cool, wanted to be cool. I was reading an article about what cool is, and speaking about spiritual, giving an illustration. This young man, uh, this was uh, after the attack on Pearl Harbor in, in, in December of 41. This young man was 14 years old, but he was very well uh, built. He looked like, you know, 19, so he joined the Marines at 14. To make a long story short, he ended up, his first task with the Marines after getting out of boot camp was he drove heavy equipment when he was 15 in Hawaii. And, uh, but he wanted to fight. He wanted to go on the front lines. Now, uh, what I read was he didn't get to go on D-Day, uh, but a couple of days after D-Day, he landed at Normandy. But because he snuck over there, he was a Marine, but he snuck over there. He, he got on a transport, so he, he had no rifle. So the story goes that when his crew landed on the shore, he had to find a rifle off a corpse. And he fought his way inland, all that. A day or two after battle, in battling, after he had been shot at and he had killed several foes, he was, him and three other uh, Marines were caught, were ambushed by the enemy, and they threw three hand, hand grenades in on them. I, I don't remember the setting, but I do remember the three hand grenades. And at 16, this young man, uh, I'm not making this up, it's true, I'll give you the guy's name in a minute. He, he took all three hand grenades, shoved them in the sand, and he laid on them. And he said to himself, this is the day I die. He didn't die. He got on a, a Samaritan uh, medical ship and that he survived. And the doctors kept saying he must be too young and too mean to die. <laughs> 21 surgeries later, he was the youngest Medal of Honor winner in the history of the Marines. He did it at the age of 16. He was still a freshman in high school, but he had the Medal of Honor. Now, what this article was talking about, that's cool. That, that's, what, that's, that's courage. That's dedication. That's giving your life for a cause. Now, in the Christian world, how far are we? How far am I away from being cool? That kind of cool. Where I abandon, you abandon absolutely everything for the cause of Christ. Years ago, I've never said anything about this. Never. Uh, I may mention two things. One you may be aware of, one you're not. When I, I've been here 23 and a half years. Really, it's longer than 23 and a half years. Uh, 23 years and seven months, really. And uh, I'd been here about a year and a half and we had a power struggle. And 
there was a man, his, he had a Ph.D., he was in our church. Now, we're a little country church then. We're still a little country church, but we were, you know, we were still meeting in the, uh, what's now the Fellowship Hall. And they had had some power struggles before I got here, and they had run off some preachers. And uh, so this guy shows up out of nowhere. Uh, they weren't active, and, uh, but they get active, and I put that in quotes. And all of a sudden, we have ourselves a power struggle because Ron... I won't give you his last name. They don't live here now uh, because he's a, an elitist. He wanted to be in control. And he even took me out to eat a couple of times to try to persuade me to his side. Well, our church goes in the midst of we get in a battle. We get in a battle. This is before many of you are here. Power struggle. And we had some ugly deacons meetings. Now, I'd been here a year and a half or two. It was, matter of fact, I'll tell you when it was. It was when Walter was coming here. We had just called Walter. And I mean, we had some deacons battles and because some of them believed this guy. And, but one of the things I kept telling the men is, uh, and some of them bought into what he was saying. It really saddened me, you know, because I kept saying, where are his credentials? I want to know what gives this guy the authority, number one, to question my leadership when, I, when he hadn't been here that long. And where did he come from? I want to know his credentials. I, I want to vet him. Let's vet him. Where did he come from? Well, he didn't come from anywhere. You know what I'm saying? He, he, he had no church history. And uh, that's what Paul's talking about here. His people standing in the church. Now, it's a different situation, but it could, be, it could happen in America. It could happen in our church, what we're going to read. But the standing in the church, Paul's going to say, don't you have somebody in the church that has a standing, that has spiritual maturation that you can trust with this? Well, obviously in, in that event, they trusted somebody who was an absolute power-hungry man. And I believe his wife was worse. And uh, that was good riddance. And uh, I can remember, she's not here, but Pat Hawkins' husband, Ben, Where's Pat? Hey, Pat. Pat, Ben, got up, Ben, Ben. It's been, time flies, doesn't it? Uh, ben was on the committee that called me, but John Huggins was on that team too. But anyway, so blame John. And John, Ben's passed, so you can't blame him. But Ben got up in a deacon's meeting, and he invited everybody that disagreed with me and the deacons to get out of the church. That's what he told them. He said, you can just get out of here. I remember it to this day. But this guy caused trouble, and I wanted to know what his credentials were. And because it's important, not, not because of me, just because... You, and, and so you have to wonder, who you, who's leading the pack? Who's shepherding the flock? And uh, look what Paul says. This is chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you, and this is sad, of course, you know the church at Corinth. It would almost do me well to preach through 1 Corinthians again because this church was just overrun with sins of the flesh. I mean, just like we are today. It, it, it's, uh, they had lost their, their uh, parameters for living the Christian life for sure. And It says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the... I love the way Paul says this. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? We're saying... So you have a grievance. Now, this obviously it's not a 
in the sense of all history and the life that you would live, it's all these things are petty. Very few things are are of substance that you might even want to go to court, but these are have to be petty. But so would you go to the unrighteous, to an unrighteous judge, instead of gather before the saints to get a, a rendering, you know, of the situation? Paul uh, Jesus said this very thing. You can read it in Matthew 18. You know, confront your brother, take somebody with you, you know. Um, or do you not know, by the way, uh, Paul's inferring, or do you not know? If, you, if you've ever studied the book of 1 Corinthians, that's a very common phrase, and it appears four times right here in this one chapter. And his implications are either you don't know or you have forgotten. I'm convinced that whether it's this issue or many other issues in church life, people just don't know. And it's sad. They don't know. They don't know what's biblical and not biblical. Some people don't know, and then other people don't know, and they don't care. Okay, And those are the people that we have to vet. You can't have those kind of people making decisions for the church. He says, or do you not know? By the way, verse 2, verse 9, verse 16, verse 19. Four times in chapter 6. Or do you not know? Now look what he says here. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't, you don't have to answer it out loud. But let me read it first. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Now, this isn't the subject matter for this morning. But my question is, have you ever heard of that doctrine before? And no, you haven't. Because you don't find that anywhere else in Scripture except by Paul. Now later on in the book of Revelation, in John's Revelation, we get some about a new, you know, the reigning on earth with Christ. You get that part of the Revelation. But at this part, 30 years or 35 years before the book of Revelation was written, Paul says, do you not know? But we should know because of what Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. <laughs> Servant on the mount. But he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? How did Paul know that? Well, remember, there's two things we know. Paul, and this is why we believe in divine inspiration. We believe that Paul was an apostle and and had the authority to write Scripture. Is he claims to have had three, at least three times where Jesus shows up to him and teaches him. Okay. And then we know one time in chapter 12 of this same book, he's taken to the third heaven. He's taken to paradise. Now what he sees there, he can't explain and speak about to some degree, but obviously he garnered some theology from what he saw. So he tells us here that saints, I believe it's the church, the saints saved, it's the church age since the ascension of Jesus and since Pentecost. I may be wrong. I mean, we may get there and, and the Old Testament saints may be ruling the world with us. I'm not sure, but, but um, I know, uh, I know, uh, hold on, I'm going to get there. I know that tribulation saints will rule the world with us. I don't know about Old Testament. Is it cold in here to you? My fingers are cold. Don't dare touch that. I'm just kidding. Yeah, you can touch. I think it's this one. I turned this one down pretty low. 
I'm going to have to keep my hands in my pocket. It's the cold. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have done I, By the way, let me just... Most of the time, I never touch... I saw honest truth on Sunday mornings. I normally don't touch the thermostats. But I did this morning. I, I messed up. But anyway... It's kind of chilly. I might need to go get me a little blankie. I might need to get me a little blankie. I'm sorry. That's silly. Okay. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? I just want you to know that that's, that's a revelation given to Paul, obviously given to us. And we know that's true. The thousand years says we'll reign with him. We'll rule the world with Jesus. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to tr- try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? There's another revelation, right? Now, we're, angels have more power and authority than we do now. But there's going to come a time in eschatology, the study of end times, where we will rule Angels. Now, I, I don't know if it, we're going to be in control of the seraphim or the cherubim. I, that's not the way I take that. The word angels there is, is the simple word for messengers. Okay, So I think for the messenger angels uh, that the Bible speaks more about than any of them, these are the ones that we may have charge of. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but Paul was given this revelation and I believe it. Okay. So we're going to have this massive, we're going to have serious authority, right? And serious responsibility in the kingdom. And that's Paul's argument. Why in the world would I care what a pagan has to say if I'm trying to decide something between believers? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? And I know we're not glorified. I know we're not, you know, we haven't been transformed yet and that's going to allow us to do these things I know but still because of the position we have in Christ that's what Paul's arguing what so what he says so if you so if you have such cases what they're dealing with now why do you lay them before those here here's the phrase before those who have no standing in the church Standing in the church. Now, you know what he's, he's not talking about standing in the church in the foyer, standing up. He's talking about your, the respect you have, the honor you have, the position you have within the church. So let, me, let me read a little bit more. The standing you have in the church. You know, who's going to deal with this? Who's going to deal with this troublemaker? Who's going to squash the gossip? Who's going to confront the immoral person? Well, you've got to find people that have a standing in the church. Now, I'll ask another question. I'll answer it immediately, but think about it. The Bible does say there's a group of men in the church that have a standing by virtue of the position they hold. It's the deacons. It's interesting that the Bible affirms that one group of people the church has is the group of deacons. They have a standing from, from being ordained and, and being elected and being in the role, it says that in First Timothy. They have a standing uh, in the church. So they would be some of those people that should be able to deal with this. But anyway, let's move on. 
So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who, who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? You know, some of the harshest words Jesus ever used was in Matthew 18 to the unforgiving servants. In the parable, you know, it's the, he talks about debt, one servant. One servant owed his master millions. He begged the master to forgive him. The master did. That's us with Jesus. That servant who's been forgiven millions goes and finds a guy that owes him a week's pay. The guy doesn't have the money, so he throws him in debtor's prison. And now the master finds out about it. And then he calls that second servant a wicked servant. And his argument is, if you've been forgiven millions, and you have been forgiven millions of sins, right? Yeah. How dare you not forgive your brother? Your brother, your Lord, forgave you. The Holy Son of God was punished and took your punishment and died in your stead and you've been forgiven. And how dare you? That's the argument. You can read it in Matthew 18. How dare you not forgive your brother? And so here in, the early, in this early church, you know, 20, 25 years after Christ had been crucified and resurrected and ascended this church. And, and so they're, 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 not doing, they're not living biblically. Uh, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? I look at brothers. And that's for a reason. Brothers. Uh, but brother goes to law against brother? And that before unbelievers? Do you see how uh, he's writing this like it's Unbelievable. It's more, really, we'd almost say it's, we would today say it's moronic to do this. Of course, we do other things that are moronic, don't we? That just defy biblical truth. Just because either we don't know or we don't care. We know and we don't care. COVID has done that to many believers. It, uh, And I, I say believer very loosely there for some of the people that have done this, but uh, COVID allowed a lot of, quote, Christians to uh, find out how much they can get away with without God striking them dead, right? Just don't care. And that's not, the, we're in the age of grace and God doesn't judge like that most of the time. Uh, it does, he does do it on occasion. But... In the Old Testament, that's, you know, the law was that way, but in grace it's not. But, and if it was, you and I wouldn't be here either. We'd be a pillar of salt somewhere. But, but so they have figured out, so uh, they act like unbelievers. Uh, to have lawsuits at all, I'm, I'm at verse 7. To have lawsuits, it takes me a long time to read Scripture, doesn't it? So you're thinking, well, he's, this guy's out of time now, he, so he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong, 
It's amazing sometimes you'll be willing to do that. Many, all of us in here have suffered wrong. And many, we know that. But there's other times in our lives, for whatever the reason, whether we're spiritually weak or the devil's at work or the person that has offended us, we don't necessarily, we love them in Jesus, but we don't like them, you know. And all of a sudden, the flesh just, and we're, we don't want to be wronged. We don't want to let it go. Um, but, but, but not rather suffer wrong. Why not rather be defrauded? Suffer wrong? Be defrauded. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And the inference there is you're doing that by taking to, to, letting the pagans make your decisions. You're, you're defrauding your brother. You're, you're doing the wrong thing by responding. Let, let me keep reading. He says, or, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a, again, the kingdom, inherit the kingdom. Uh, when you're reading the scriptures, uh, reminds you, you know, when you hear the idea or you're reading the, the doctrine about inheritance, um, when you hear the word, inheritance or read the word inheritance I'm sorry I lost my train of thought there every time you read about that that we have an inheritance as adopted Paul argues this in Romans especially Romans 8 that we're adopted children of God and that's what gives us but every time you see that it's always in the masculine okay it, it always talks about the male part you know the the men brotherhood inheriting uh, and and Paul just does that culturally because in the Roman Empire uh, only males got an inheritance I, I don't know if you study much Roman history but even some Roman pagan Roman leaders had problems because they had no male descendants so they would adopt male descendants because you can't give an inheritance to, to a daughter there had to be a, a son so if you study, that's the Roman law. So when Paul's writing a lot of times, when you talk about inheritance, that's why it, it's not excluding the female. It's just talk, sisters in Christ get the inheritance too. We're all, that's why John uses the word child. We're all children of God and we all have the same father. So we all get the inheritance. But anyway, I just find that interesting when you're reading the text, how it does, but we you know, we're, we're all going to inherit. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You remember now, inheritance is something you don't earn, okay? Think about the inheritance. Do not be deceived, neither... Now he's going to describe pagans. Why don't you follow along with me? Uh, uh, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, present tense, they're active. It's, a, it's not saying that you, if you've ever been sexually immoral or that you've ever been an adulterer, or that, you, that you've done it once, that if this is who you are, understand. nor men who practice homosexuality. Now, I look, this is why translations matter. We use the ESV, obviously. We changed seven or eight years ago to the ESV. 
And one reason you do is because the accuracy of the text, the Greek translating the original language. So when I read this, and you can go back, I've read it in the NIV, I got New King James, I got King James, I've got RSVs, I've got uh, all kind of translations, but the ESV is very clear uh, and exact in how it describes that kind of lifestyle. And we're not dealing with this today, obviously, but the scriptures deal with it. It says, nor, it says, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. If you look at the, obviously it has the word for, for homosexual uh, uh, of the same sex, but it has the word, here's the word, uh, soft, receptive. That's enough that I need to say. Translated here, men who practice homosexuality. It's exact. It's condemning that part of that relationship. Nor thieves, nor the greedy. I was reading an article the other day and this, this moron was saying that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. And I, again, it's affected Distance in my family, I got an uncle. Now I have a first cousin that's been homosexual for 50 years. It's, it's affected my family, it's affected your family, it's affected our church before. Uh, we've had issues in the church. and So I'm not saying that, you know, it's just a reality though. And so, pra- so people who practice it, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, Will and, and that's all present tense. It's your lifestyle. John, John says it like this. 1 John 2. Those who practice sin. Matter of fact, it says those who are born of God do not practice sin. You're not known to be a raging, disobedient sinner. You do sin, but you don't live in sin. Okay? You don't live in sin, but sin lives in you, right? There's a huge difference, right? Does sin live in you? <laughs> yeah. Because at any minute, I can act like a moron. or I can, I can act like an infidel at the drop of a hat at a certain point in time. You can too, but I don't live that way. Let's move on. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Folks, it's conversion. It's, you know, part of salvation, we talk about eternal security. We talk about a lot of doctrines when it comes to faith and what it means to be born again. But you are, one of the big words when I was coming up was conversion, being converted to Christ or being converted by Christ, converted to change directions, to be changed regeneration, new birth, whatever term you want to use, Paul mentions this here, and such were some of you. Of course, you know the pagan culture of Corinth, massive to, um, if you were doing an introduction to the, to the city of Corinth, uh, uh, many scholars believe it is the city that's most like an American culture today, much like the city of Laodicea is in the seven churches. 
of the seven churches. And the last church Jesus speaks to is the church at Laodicea. Of all the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Laodicea is much like the culture in America today. Well, scholars think, if you, many scholars, if you picked a, a city in the Bible that, that's like the, the, I guess, the pregnant with sin, like our culture is, Corinth would be that. It had it all, you know, gambling, alcoholism, prostitution, uh, murder, anyway. So he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. Reminds me of what he says in uh, Ephesians 2. You know, we went through Ephesians for a few months. Uh, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the court. But God, because of the mercy, has saved us. And so, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, since I'm here, look, drop down to verse uh, 15. I want to read the other do you not know since we're here. Uh, he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? I, can, I used this years ago. I don't know if I've used it here. But, you know, when we think about uh, defiling the temple, you know, if I were to... Uh, and I know this is a stretch when I say this. I don't mean to be trite about this, but if you were to show up one Sunday morning and I had the, I'm, the fact that I even know this is a possibility or that I know these, this, if I had the Hooters girls here and they were, they were going to do a dance show and they were going to be running down the middle, because some of you remember something else that happened here that did that they run down and bounce off a trampoline and then do a flip and land on the platform or do something. We had a big, and it was for high attendance. We're going to have the Hooters girls and we're going to have high attendance. I'm making this up. You, you know, it would be my last Sunday here, wouldn't it? Because you're thinking, what an insult, right? But how many of you beaten at a Hooters? Men? No, I haven't, so I can say it. So... How many of you have defiled your temple? See what I'm saying? You are the temple, right? It, and Paul argues this again in Ephesians that you're the temple and we're the temple. So you would be right if I had if we got in here and acted like a bunch of idiots. People should lose their job and should question their calling, all that. But at the same time, if you do the same thing or watch it on TV, you've defiled the temple. We don't think, but, but He's clear. You, you're it. The Spirit's in you. Do you not know that, that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And you say, I've never done that. You are a liar because you've watched it on TV. And many of you are still willing to do it. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Now that's talking about the physical connection. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That is incredible. He who is joined to the Lord, it's used in marriage terms, becomes one spirit. 
one spirit. You're united like a union, like a a union of husband and wife. This, This intimate union, you become one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And there's great studies about that. That when you do defile your body, when the act, that's why the act is worse than the fault. It is worse than watching it eventually. If you act upon it rather than just looking upon it, there's certain things happen to your mind when you do it physically. But you sin against your own body. And there's studies on that and that it, it's... It, it, it has a greater consequence, obviously. It's outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom, whom you have from God. I'm watching the clock. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now there's four things I won't go over. I'll read them, give you the words. We'll come back to them next Sunday. We'll pick back up in your standing in the church. In order to have a standing in the church, now I, you, could, you could do this yourself. You could go home and say, okay, I'm going to pick three or four things that the Bible says will give you a standing in the church. And you know what I mean? I'm not talking about somebody that's power hungry, somebody that wants to be head of a committee, wants to show off, wants to have their name called, wants to be in charge. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about somebody that's spiritually going to be trusted, that's a leader, that's a servant, that knows Scripture, and, and knows how to deal with sinning people, sinning believers. I said, number one, it's about illumination. Okay, It's, it's about the looming work of the Spirit. Number two, it's about inspiration, about God's Word. Number three, it's about inheritance. Because the Bible says not only do you gonna get, is, is it the, the riches of God are going to be there, but do you know the Bible says your deeds will follow you there? That done the good things. That you, so the inheritance is more than just streets of gold, right? And living in a mansion or a, a dwelling, not a mansion, living in a dwelling place, mansion's not a good translation. I got a mansion, John, uh, for that he doesn't say man, it's dwelling places. Because uh, mansions makes us think we're going to live in a, you know, a 12 bedroom house by ourselves, like that's what God wants. That's crazy. So, a dwelling place. Yes, there's a place for you in the New Jerusalem, a place just for you. All, the, all those things are true, but another part of the inheritance is your deeds follow you. It means the history of you doing the right thing and obeying are going to continue to bear fruit. If I died today, my deeds will follow me. That means the fruits I'm being will follow me there. You know, I'll still produce fruits even though I'm dead and gone because my the so it's about inheritance and then it's about instruction. Paul talks. We'll talk about those things. Years ago, uh, let me read you a couple of verses. Well, now let's not. Okay. If I get off on this, we'll be here forever. Okay. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says, And we know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. So, all the other brothers and sisters 
Our goal in life is to be like who? Christ. And the blessings and the glory of God, one of the things about God's glory is that when we get to the place that He's prepared, when we get to heaven, everybody there, everybody there is going to be like the Son of God. Now, we're not going to be the Son of God. We're going to be like Him. Because John says we'll be like Him because we'll see Him as it means we'll be, we'll be glorified. We'll see Him as it really is. Unvarnished, uncovered. He'll be God's glory. We can't do that now. So we will see Him as He is. But our goal, all of us will be transformed into His image. And that glorifies the Father. Think about that. That a whole kingdom, every member, just like His Son. That's what Jesus prayed about in John 17. When you look at the high priestly prayer, He knew that's what the Father was going to do. Is have everybody like Him when He gets to heaven. It's an incredible thing. Let's stand. We'll come back to standing in the church next Sunday. Um, and we'll learn about standing firm, standing fast, and standing free. Well, you know, I won't preach another sermon, but anyway. Anyway, so I'm not going to have a benediction unless everybody promises to stay. But I'm not going to go stand in the parking lot and watch you or let the air out of your tires. Speaking of air in the tire, if y'all repeat this to my wife, I won't forgive you. I got in her car the other day, and I'm sorry, I'm chasing rabbits today, but I normally don't do that. So, so it's New Year's. Give me a break. Okay, so uh, this is the best sermon I've preached this year. I'll be appearing tonight at 7 if you want to come back. Anyway, so I got in her car, uh, the one you know our kids bought for her last year, and uh, her one of her warning lights was on, so I did the little dash. It took me a long time to figure out how to get the... Anyway, so she had put 70 pounds of air pressure in one tire. I said, I said, honey, I said, do you... She says, well, it was low, and I said, well... She just stuck everything on this. And I said, well, baby, listen, I pre- don't you repeat this. I said, if you do that, go to where the machine, you dial up and put 34, and then when it gets to 34, it'll shut off. It won't put any more in that tire. She said, it just was low, and so I stuck that thing on. I didn't know how much to put in there. I don't know how she's made. So obviously I had to let air out of the tire. So anyway, I don't know how I got off on that, but it was a good story. So please stay. We won't sit around the table. We won't take long. We'll talk a lot about it while you're eating. So you won't, you won't spend all day here. Uh, otherwise, we'll, we'll be here on Wednesday night church. So God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we... You know, up on the list in all of our minds, some of us, we think, okay, I want to do better in my prayer life. Others are thinking, Lord, I need to lose a little bit more weight. Or I want to do better in my Bible reading. Um, All these resolutions that are going through our minds. Lord, more than anything, I want to be, and I want to lead this church to be, more in love with Jesus than ever before. And by doing that, we're going to be better, 
members of the local church. Father, thank you for the grace that allows us to share in the riches of your glory. Thank you that we have an inheritance that's guaranteed. Lord, thank you that you reward us for our acts of obedience. Lord, thank you for the hands that have prepared our food. Thank you for the work of the Vision Sharing Design Team. Lord, thank you that we have another year to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless our time of fellowship and food now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all. Please stay. God bless you.